Hello, this is Joe Flair. Welcome to the Joe Flair Show. Your monthly, bi-monthly music podcast. Starting with this episode, the Joe Flair Show will produce six full-length episodes a year rather than a monthly show. This podcast is a side gig for me, and the other parts of my life have gotten quite busy. So I was left with the options of either putting out an okay show every month, or putting them out less frequently, but keeping them high quality. And since high quality is my goal, welcome to the Joe Flair Show. Now your bi-monthly music podcast. In case you missed it, last month my lovely supporting guest Kit and I talked about the tragically short career of the icon Selena, queen of piano music. This month we are featuring another female artist, a true legend. This month's featured artist is a household name for many reasons. You may know her for philanthropy, or you might have even visited her theme park on your vacation in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Most people know her for her outstanding, influential, and extensive career in country music. This month's featured artist is Dolly Parton. Dolly Rebecca Parton was born on January 19, 1946, in a small town in Sevier County, Tennessee. Despite how she might live today, Dolly grew up the fourth of twelve children in a one-room cabin in Locust Ridge. After her birth, Parton's parents paid the doctor with a cycle cornmeal. Dolly's father, Robert Lee Parton, was a tobacco farmer and sharecropper, while Evie Lee Parton was a stay-at-home mother. Despite her frequently ailing health, Evie Lee managed to take care of all her kids. She sewed outfits for the children to wear. There wasn't much decor around the house, except for some images of Jesus and pictures of the Last Supper. Parton's family was quite independent. They made their own soap and had a little battery radio that they would pour water on to get the station's connection. Parton's father, Robert Lee, loved listening to the Grand Ole Opry. If you were near the Parton's cabin, chances are you'd hear classic country artists like Roy Acuff and Minnie Pearl playing from the battery radio. Due to their simple lifestyle, the Partons spent a lot of time together. Friends and family would help with business in the tobacco farm, and the family would participate in hog-killing time and help with the chores. Dolly said that her family was rich in kindness and love. I have to jump in and say I am not surprised you're giving us another Rags to Riches story, Joel. I know these are some of your favorites, and I enjoy hearing them too. But that last line where you said Dolly's family was rich in kindness and love kind of separates us from the stories you've given us before. We've heard about other artists 
um, Logic and Eminem, for example, whose upbringings were not only lacking financially, but also emotionally. Theirs were more stories of neglect and I'd go as far as to say childhood abuse. But Dolly's life, while one lived in that similar poverty, seems like one that was filled with love and support. From everything I watched and read, that certainly seems true. Dolly's parents also reminded their children that there were people out there who were in worse situations. However, it is pretty much undeniable that this family was in challenging circumstances. The Partons struggled financially, and it was hard to make ends meet. As mentioned earlier, Dolly Parton grew up in a one-room cabin, and this cabin was very basic. Having no money for electricity or air conditioning, newspapers were used as a substitute for insulation and Dolly's father would start an indoor fire to heat the house before Dolly and her siblings got up. The children slept together in just a few beds. The family usually bathed once a week, but Dolly recalls bathing every day during high school, as she would wake up covered in urine from her siblings, since they shared beds. The Partons had an outhouse instead of a toilet, Dolly's first encounter with a flushing toilet was at her aunt's house when she was eight. She said that she didn't want the toilet to, quote, drag us down. Now, as far as I can tell, Dolly didn't mean that she was afraid that the toilet would literally suck her family down its tubes. When she said drag us down, she meant that she wasn't used to this different lifestyle. It may seem hard to grasp for most of us, but this one-room home was the only home Dolly really knew growing up. She took pride in her house, and she took pride in her family. I think it's hard for most of us living in this modern society to imagine what this life was like. You know, like you said, it's a one-room cabin. There are 12 kids, two adults, so that's 14 people in one room. And these children don't get their own beds. They're kind of packed into just a few beds. It's a very simple life, and yet this family, throughout all the stories we read, seems to stay positive and happy with their lives. Dolly was lucky to feel passionate about her surroundings because sometimes others wouldn't respect her upbringing. One time, her mother sewed together a coat for Dolly. It was a multicolored coat made out of several pieces of fabric. As Avery Lee sewed, she told the biblical story of Joseph and his brothers, envious over his bright accessory. Sure enough, just like Joseph, young Dolly was bullied at school for a homemade coat. She would go on years later to write a song about it, called Coat of Many Colors. Now, as disclosed before in the show, I'm not a great singer, but please allow me to at least read the bridge of the tune. My coat of many colors that my mama made for me, made only from rags, but I wore it so proudly. Although we had no money, I was rich as I could be, in my coat of many colors my mama made for me. If you'd like to hear it sung the way it's meant to be, feel free to check out my Dolly Parton playlist, linked in the description after this show. 
The list includes Coat of Many Colors, among other Dolly hits. Dolly also made a documentary about her childhood named after that song. Parton said to this day that Coat of Many Colors is her favorite song of hers, which is pretty impressive since she's written over 5,000 of them. She's written other songs about her home life beyond Coat of Many Colors, including In the Good Old Days When Times Were Bad, turning some of those rough life moments into hits. But there was one horrible moment in her childhood that couldn't even be put to music. As mentioned before, Avery Lee, Dolly's mother, had 12 children. There was about a year and a half between each kid. And when Avery had a baby, she would give the newborn to a child of hers. She would say that the older child got to feed and change and help with the baby. Well, eventually, it was Dolly's turn to help with the newborn, and she even got to name the baby. She chose Larry. Sadly, Larry passed away as a baby, and the family was devastated. While the loss affected the entire family, the sadness was extremely apparent in Dolly and her mother. Avery Lee didn't sew, Dolly didn't sing. Dolly's sister, Wilma Jean, advised her father to comfort them through the grief. This was supposed to be the child that Dolly would take care of, and the loss of baby Larry Parton not only affected the family's morale, the tragedy also challenged their faith. Ultimately, through God, Dolly said that they were able to make it through this incredibly tough time. When an unfortunate situation tests someone's spirituality, it doesn't hurt to have a religious figure in the family. Dolly Parton's grandfather, Jake Owens, was a Pentecostal preacher. Not only did Jake help with the family's grief, he also helped Dolly in what would eventually be her lifelong profession. She sang in her grandfather's church at age six, and Jake Owens gave Dolly her first real guitar as a present when she was eight. Prior to her professional guitar, Dolly had built a makeshift guitar at the age of seven. I think it's safe to say music was in her blood. <laughs> from what I read and from what you're saying now, Dolly started singing young and never slowed down. I saw that Dolly credits her dad with giving her her business sense, but she credits her mom with getting her started singing. Dolly's mom used to sing Appalachian ballads and folklore to her flock of one dozen kids. Dolly would compose songs as a child. Sometimes when the Pirates had visitors, Avery Lee would ask Dolly to sing one of her songs for the guests. She made her first ever song at five titled Little Tiny Tasseltop, a song dedicated to a corn cob doll named Tasseltop. Some of the lyrics go like this. Little tiny tasseltop, I love you an awful lot. Hope you never go away. I want you to stay. Dolly went on radio stations and performed at county fairs. At 10, her uncle took her to perform live in front of an audience at the Cass Walker Show. 
After the applause, young Dolly knew that this was what she was going to do. Sing. That was going to be her job. Retrospectively, Dolly said she really just had an idea that came to reality. But music was something she said she could, quote, live in, and has described it as a way out. Music was a part of her life. Dolly saw it as a good job opportunity. When she was 13, she recorded her first song, Puppy Love, on Gold Band Records. And the day after her high school graduation, with her family in her heart, she was on her way to Nashville, Tennessee, to pursue her dream. When she first arrived in Nashville, Dolly signed with Combine Publishing and got to work as a songwriter along with her partner and uncle, Bill Owens, producing hits that made it on the charts, including two top tens. In early 1965, Fred Foster signed Dolly Parton to his label, Monument Records. She released her debut single on Monument Records, I Wasted My Tears, and broke into the charts with Happy Happy Birthday Baby, peaking at number 108 on Billboard's Hot 100 Bubbling Under chart. Dolly's label wanted her to perform bubblegum pop, even though her pop music wasn't selling well. Monument Records thought she had a voice better suited for brighter pop, or even rock, but not country. This was unfortunate, as Dolly had always loved country music and wanted to perform in that style. With reluctance, the label folded, and she released her debut country album, appropriately titled Hello, I'm Dolly, in 1967. It shot up to number 11 on Billboard's Top Country Albums chart and contained a duo of top 40 singles, Something Fishy and Dumb Blonde. I feel like the lyrics of Dumb Blonde really introduced the world to Dolly Parton's female empowerment with lyrics like, Just because I'm blonde, don't think I'm dumb, because this dumb blonde ain't nobody's fool. Interestingly enough, this song was actually written by Curly Putman, who wrote only a few songs in his time. It's interesting how Putman was able to capture Parton's attitude so well. Later in her career, Dolly wrote most of her tunes, but early on, she was assisted in songwriting by people like Curly Putman, Bill Phillips, and of course, her uncle, Bill Owens. In 1969, Dolly made her debut appearance on the Grand Ole Opry. It was where she met Johnny Cash, who told Dolly to chase her dreams. Shortly after the success of Hello, I'm Dolly, country music singer Porter Wagner invited Dolly to join him on his self-titled television program. Dolly replaced Norma Jean, a regular, as a performer on this show. Some audience members were upset at the switch, but Porter didn't seem to care. With his help, Dolly was signed to RCA Victor, which was a label he was already on. They teamed her up with Porter on the duet The Last Thing on My Mind, which was the first in a long line of songs performed by the pair that hit country music's top ten. This is exactly what RCA Victor wanted, 
a smash duet made by someone establishing herself alongside someone already successful on the label's roster. The pair was on fire, winning Country Music Association's Vocal Group of the Year in 1968. Despite this, Dolly couldn't seem to get recognized for any of her solo work. After a couple years, Porter suggested she record the song Mule Skinner Blues. That song hit number three and became the start of a string of solo hits. I'm guessing Dolly was grateful for Porter's support and guidance when others weren't sure she was cut out for a career in country music. She sure was, but by 1974, Dolly announced that she was leaving the Porter Wagner show after co-hosting for seven years. Some might have called it a breakup, and that relationship's end led to a song that reached number one on the country chart that same year. Its name? I will always love you. Dolly wanted to gain some independence, and Porter was apprehensive about her leaving him. But after he heard the iconic I will always love you, all uncertainty left him. Dolly Parton said that Porter actually cried upon hearing that song for the first time. As you might already know, I will always love you, was later covered in 1992 by the incomparable Whitney Houston on the Bodyguard soundtrack. On her commute from her Brentwood office to her home, Dolly had to pull over her car when she heard Whitney's version. I honestly thought I was going to have a heart attack, she said. It was one of the most overwhelming things. I do not doubt that. I think everyone can agree that Dolly is a music icon, but Whitney was too. And while both women are incredibly talented, their sounds are different. So it must have been exciting for Dolly to hear her hit covered by one of the greatest singers of all time. I listened to both versions, and they are completely different musically. Parton's is more melancholy, while Houston's version seems a bit more theatrical. Which makes sense, since the latter was recorded for a movie. Before Whitney Houston changed the world with her cover, there was one other artist that was interested in recording the song, but Dolly said no. Any guesses about who almost recorded the song long before Whitney? If you guessed the king, Elvis Presley, you'd be correct. Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis's manager, phoned Dolly the day before the recording session and confirmed that Elvis would record his song and publicly release it. Dolly Parton turned down the plan after realizing that Elvis would receive half of the publishing rights. This was understandable, as Dolly had said that I Will Always Love You as one of her most profitable songs, so selling off 50% of the royalties seemed like a bit too much to give up. She clarified that she wasn't upset at Colonel Tom Parker or Elvis for wanting to make the song. She even said that the king liked I Will Always Love You so much that he sang it to his wife before they divorced. Dolly was just a bit sad that she would have to tell her friends that she turned down Elvis Presley. Joel, you have some fun stories in this month's episode. Thank I you. Had, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I had no idea that the end of a recording relationship inspired I Will Always Love You. I think most people out there 
um, would assume that it was the end of a romantic relationship, but it was really inspired by her leaving the Porter Wagner show. Very cool. And I also had no idea that Elvis almost recorded that same song. I've got one more fun story for your kid. Dolly Parton had released I Will Always Love You on the same album as another hit song, Jolene. Both tunes were written in one night. As we already know, I Will Always Love You was a huge hit, but so was Jolene. Jolene was inspired by a bank teller who was apparently interested in Dolly's husband. In the Jolene tune, you'll hear descriptors of the woman's features and lyrics, like red hair and green eyes. Some lines, like, please don't take my man, were inspired by the teller hawking Dolly's husband, but the singer said that the subject was obviously exaggerated. An exaggeration or not, Jolene was one thing for sure. A success. A crossover success at that. Jolene reached number seven on the UK music charts, proving Dolly's international appeal. But that's not all. There's a second part to the story. The bank teller's name wasn't Jolene. Dolly looked out in a live audience and saw a little girl with red hair. She asked this young fan what her name was. The girl said, Jolene. Thinking that was a pretty name, Dolly knew that she had to turn her fan into a song and kept repeating the name on her tour bus so she wouldn't forget. The 1980s were truly Dolly Parton's heyday. Endeavors in music, film, and business followed in this decade. By the late 70s, Dolly was hoping to cross over and see some pop success. On November 17, 1980, she released the album 9 to 5 and Odd Jobs. As you may have already guessed, this release featured the classic Earworm mentioned in the title's first half. 9 to 5 skyrocketed to number 1 on the Billboard Hot 100 and Adult Contemporary charts, respectively. It was both a country and a pop music hit. The name was a reference to the 1973 organization 9 to 5, which fought for fair payment for females in the workplace. The fight for equality is apparent in most of the lyrics. Want to move ahead? But the boss won't seem to let me. I swear sometimes that man is out to get me. You talk a lot about music. We spend a lot of time together. I hear a lot about it. And surprisingly, it rarely gets stuck in my head. That being said, I have had 9 to 5 rattling around in there more days than I'd like to admit while you've been working on this script. (laughs) And I kid you not, I woke up this morning with it stuck in my head. So when you say it's an earworm, you are not kidding. At first, at least for me, it's hard to pay attention to the lyrics over that catchy melody. But for the folks who didn't get the message, 20th Century Fox released a movie focused on the song's topic, appropriately titled 9 to 5. The film starred Dabney Coleman, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, and of course, Dolly Parton. Thanks to IMDb, 
I was able to assemble a very quick rundown of the plot for those interested. Coleman plays the role of a hypocritical and sexist boss, Franklin Hart Jr. Meanwhile, Tomlin, Fonda, and Parton play three female workers struggling in the business. Throughout the movie, the three women brainstorm ways to get rid of their boss, and, well, if you're interested in the movie, you can surely rent 9 to 5. In the meantime, let's hear some of these reviews. On Rotten Tomatoes, the average score from critics is 68%, while the audience gave it 74%. One casual review came from the journal of someone with a recognizable name. Quote, Funny, but one scene made me mad. A truly funny scene is the three gals have played getting drunk, but no, they had to get stoned on pot. It was an endorsement of pot smoking for any young person who sees the picture. End quote. This review was written after he took his wife Nancy to the film on Valentine's Day. Who knew that Mr. Ronald Reagan was such a movie critic? Regardless of the reviews, 9 to 5 grossed over $100 million. Those numbers were most likely very satisfying. But Dolly Parton didn't just sit back and feel satisfied. She went from very little to a heck of a lot, and she wanted to make the most of her money. Her next big investment would be in her home state of Tennessee. Story time, Joel. Hit us. Back in 1961, siblings Grover, Harry, and Spencer Robbins founded the theme park Rebel Railroad. This park was obviously railroad-themed. In 1970, ownership changed hands, and Rebel Railroad became Gold Rush Junction, a Wild West themed park. In 1976, brothers Jack and Pete Hershend bought what was now named Silver Dollar City and focused on artisans of the Smoky Mountains. In an interview with Barbara Walters in the early 80s, Dolly mentioned an interest in starting a theme park near her hometown. Hershend Family Entertainment heard this and had no interest in competing with a new theme park, especially one tied to a star like Dolly Parton, so they proposed a partnership, and Dolly accepted. We now know the theme park as Dollywood. With an estimated 3 million visitors annually, Dollywood is currently facing its biggest expansion to date. People are waiting on the Big Bear Mountain roller coaster, and I hope it doesn't disappoint. After all, that ride cost $25 million to make, proving that expenses are about as big as expansions. Whenever I go to a theme park, I love riding the fast roller coasters. So naturally, I was thrilled to hear that the ride, Lightning Ride, goes 73 miles per hour. You might be thinking, this sounds wonderful. But where is Dolly Parton in all of this? Well, although she owns the park and its attractions, you will never catch her on one of the rides. She says that with her wig and all those accessories of hers, she thinks it's fair to say that she won't 
beyond anything like the lightning rod. Plus, Dolly admits she is, quote, a little bit chicken. As with many of the artists we've discussed on the show, Dolly Parton is more than just a singer. She's also an actress, businesswoman, and philanthropist. Coming from Nada to Alada, it's very easy to understand how someone with hundreds of millions of dollars could become arrogant and self-righteous. But I watched a lot of interviews and preparations for this month's show, and Dolly always says things like, I'm glad to give God the credit as long as I get the cash. Or, I always count my blessings before I count my money. I listened in on a lot of these interviews, and I have to agree, Dolly seems so genuinely upbeat and likable and she is just full of quirky little lines like that i was not surprised to hear she's willing to share her wealth so what does she do she's been known to donate generously to charities with that in mind let's take a deeper dive into her philanthropic work done via the dollywood foundation dolly's invested heavily in literacy and education making sure that school kids are able to get scholarships, and has also backed her hometown, Sevier County, Tennessee, by starting the Buddy Program. In this program, Parton promised each student in grades 7 and 8 $500 for completing their education. The dropout rate decreased wildly from 35% to just 6%. And that is, that is huge. By giving $500 to each middle school student that graduated from high school, she managed to take the completion rate from 65% up to 94 That's That's incredible. Dolly also created the program The Imagination Library. Since its founding in 1995, the singer has sent more than 100 million books to young children all over the world. The 100 millionth book was actually donated to the Library of Congress in honor of Robert Lee, Dolly's illiterate father. Dolly financially supported a hospital and cancer center named after the doctor who delivered her. In 2016, after wildfires swept through the Great Smoky Mountains, Dolly hosted a telethon to help the families affected, raising around $9 million. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, Dolly gave $1 million to help fund research, which led to the Moderna vaccine. You can even watch Dolly Parton and get the vaccine. She was so happy to be getting the COVID shot that she made up a song about it to a familiar tune. Okay, we managed to avoid your singing earlier, but I have a feeling that you're going to need to do a little bit of singing so we can try to catch the tune here. All right, let's do it. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. All right, I'm feeling the Jolene vibe. And also, that's a harsh ending. (laughs) (laughs) 
that is kind of dark, actually. <laughs> Dolly Parton never wanted to be indirect. Also said in a vaccine video, don't be such a chicken squat. Get out there and get your shot. In 2022, Dolly was honored with the Carnegie Medal of Philanthropy. While we are talking about investments, we need to cover some of Dolly's investments that keep people talking. Having watched so many interviews, I've certainly heard enough people commenting on her appearance. But whether I find that annoying or not doesn't matter because that's part of Parton's persona. Dolly Parton is no stranger to talking about cosmetic surgery. She wrote in her 1994 biography, and get ready, this is a funny one. I've had nips and tucks and trims and sucks, boobs and waists, and butt and such, eyes and chin and back again, pills and peels and other feels, and I'll never graduate from college. It almost sounds like song lyrics. <laughs> it kind of sounds like a... I don't know, kind of like Dolly Parton's going Dr. Seuss. Another one of her famous lines, If I see something sagging, dragging, and bagging, I'm going to get it nipped, tucked, and sucked. She certainly stays true to her word. According to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, the average breast augmentation costs more than $4,500, chin augmentation costs about $3,000, and rhinoplasty costs over $5,000. Knowing Dolly has done all of these surgeries, some multiple times and maybe others, I'd say that's quite an investment. As long as we're talking about surgeries and augmentations, let's discuss Dolly's overall image. Being known for her looks, she obviously has to spend a lot of time and money to maintain her perpetual youthful appearance. Her makeup, lipstick, blonde wig, and, of course, her breasts are all trademarks of Dolly's physical presentation. She also uses jewelry, heels, and acrylic nails. In fact, quick fun fact, those fingernails are featured as the clicking noise in the beginning of 9 to 5 to substitute percussion. Whoa, what? Alright, I'm going to take my chances and get that stuck in my head again because I need to go back and listen to 9 to 5 now that I know that little bit of trivia. I faintly remember Dolly from when I was young and I definitely remember people talking about her looks. Dolly's look is noticeable and it was inspired by what her neighborhood called the town tramp. This blonde-haired woman had on rouge and lipstick and tight-fitting clothing. Sound familiar? But as I mentioned, the whole town thought the lady was just trash. And I thought, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up, said Dolly Parton. But Dolly's look is a signature and unmistakable one. She says that she even goes to bed with her makeup on. Before you write this up as crazy, the path of logic is actually pretty interesting. In case of an emergency like an earthquake, Dolly knows that cameras will be outside, and she wants to appear looking like Dolly. See? Understandable, I guess. 
I wouldn't want to reapply makeup at 3 a.m. Dolly Parton's image is loved, but some take this opportunity to write tabloid pieces about her. For example, according to the singer herself, one tabloid said that Dolly couldn't move due to the size of her breasts. And by the way, if they're going to make tabloid pieces, be a bit more creative, guys. That's just <laughs> digress. Perfecting her image for over 50 years, Dolly Parton's beauty advice is pretty straightforward. Good lighting and good doctors. Oh, and she also says that a good attitude doesn't hurt either. How can you not trust a woman with five decades of experience and approximately 300 wigs to give you all these tips on staying beautiful? Even though she says her makeup is usually heavier than the year before and she clearly values her appearance, Dolly values her profession, her family and friends, and hard work even more. After all, considering how she grew up, she doesn't have an interest in being vain. Dolly Parton would rather remain grateful. If I had to choose one word to describe Dolly Parton, it would be iconic. Her legacy is shown not just on accolades alone, but also on her down-to-earth, humble personality. It certainly helps when you have a childhood like hers, focused around being thankful and counting the blessings. When speaking about losses, specifically losing industry friends, Kenny Rogers, Loretta Lynn, and Naomi Judd. Dolly said, You're sorrowful, of course, of the loss and when it happens, but then you allow yourself to just think of all the things that you remember about them that has added to your life and remember what they did for all the millions of people, the lives that they touched. And you're so thankful that you got to know them and that you got to share that time. That bit of advice stuck with me, and it sticks with the music industry, too. Dolly Parton has managed to touch the lives of millions through her artistry, and people are thankful that they know her. The awards Dolly has received show how much she's added to our lives. With two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, two Guinness World Records, and nearly 200 awards in media and music combined, including four CMA Awards, eight Grammys, and even some Academy Awards, Dolly Parton is an inspiration. Dolly's most recent honor was her 2022 induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The country singer initially declined the nomination. She wasn't rock music and therefore didn't earn a spot. But Dolly explained in a Today interview that to her understanding, the Hall of Fame is more about who you've influenced and less about rock music. If this is the case, Die Part and definitely deserve the award. To double down on her induction, Dolly is planning on releasing a rock album this year in the fall. I myself am a bit skeptical of how it'll turn out, but Dolly's husband, Carl Dean, a longtime lover of rock and roll, is delighted with the idea. Parton has remained pretty tight-lipped on the details, but she did reveal that she's planning on having female rock stars Joan Jett, 
and Pat Benatar on this newest venture. She also said that it's mostly her songwriting, but there's supposed to be a rendition of Prince's classic, Purple Rain. She said that she doesn't really want people to critique this next project, so that probably explains why Dolly is withholding a lot of info. I'm personally surprised hearing she has plans for a new album. I read she's done more than 50 in her lifetime, but most musicians, and I guess most people technically, wouldn't be working at Dolly's age because she's nearing 80, right? Correct. The fact that Dolly is still trucking along in her career at 77 years old spells out one word. Dedication. She has shooed away the idea of retirement when asked about it. According to Dolly, as long as God continues to allow her, she's not turning off the music any time soon. She is amongst one of the wealthiest musicians, with over $600 million. As of March 2023, she has earned approximately $300 million off of her many, many businesses. Dolly has written thousands of songs, received many awards, and created a number of successful businesses. Obviously, when an artist has a career spanning well over 50 years, not everything can be covered on today's show. As mentioned earlier, I will link my playlist in the show notes. And before we go... I will leave you with a few honorable mention facts about Dolly Parton. On Halloween night, the spookiest thing imaginable happened. The iconic singer lost in a Dolly Parton lookalike contest. That's right, Parton lost to drag queens in the competition. The competition of who could look the most like Dolly Parton. Whoever receives the most claps won the competition. And based on what she heard, Parton said she didn't even come close to winning. <laughs> I love that story. I do too. It's always a classic. I, multiple times during the research, had to go back and just read that story. <laughs> okay, next up. Dolly Parton first visited New York when she was starting to make it big. Judy Opal, Dolly's girlfriend, joined Parton in New York City. They checked into the one-room suite. Unfortunately, the management at the hotel thought Judy and Dolly were two hookers. Her word, not mine. So when the ladies came back from wandering NYC, the room was locked and the hotel had thrown their luggage out of the room. Harsh. Parton doesn't stray away from branching out. Vocals, guitar, banjo, violin, piano... Harmonica, saxophone, recorder, Appalachian dulcimer, possibly my favorite, and auto harp are all part of her repertoire. Her mother was Pentecostal, and her father was a Baptist. She called herself Baptocostal. But despite having two parents of different religions, Dolly is a dedicated Pentecostal. There is a bronze statue of Dolly Parton in her hometown. The first cloned animal, a sheep, was constructed from an adult mammary gland and named Dolly. 
Dolly Parton said, I never met her, but I always said there's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Dolly says she and her husband, Carl Dean, married in Atlanta so that Tennessee tabloids would stay away from them. This might explain why there are very few pictures of Carl Dean on the internet. And finally, Dolly bought back her family's Locust Ridge cabin in the 1980s. Dolly's brother Bobby helped with the reconstruction. Well, I hope you enjoyed this month's episode of the Joe Flair Show. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review or rating wherever you listen to our podcast. Until next time, I'm Joe Flair. This is the Joe Flair Show. Bye. Bye. Perfect. Well one, one hour and six minutes. Yep, well done. I'm caught, though. My chair is caught. There we go. She even said that the king, like, I will always love you so much that he sang into his wife. Before... Hold on, it sounds like that he sang into his wife. <laughs> I know that's not what you said, but Sa- it sounded Sang it. Okay. Okay. I mean, to double down on her introduction. Nope. Induction. Intr- I need... Hey. <laughs> <laughs> to double down on her induction. Go. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this park was obviously rare. Uh, rare. 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 This park was obviously railroad themed. Did I get that? You did. <laughs> okay. Dolly Parton has written thousands of songs. Released many awards. No, and cre- she's received many awards. <laughs> <laughs> she's releasing so, so much. <laughs> this podcast is an Elf Pie production.